0: Welcome to another episode of Kentucky History and Haunts. I'm your host, Jesse Bartholomew. We have been gifted a few warm, sunny days in February in Kentucky, which is uncharacteristic, and I'm soaking up every moment of it, and it's got me thinking about springtime and baseball, and I was thinking, you know, I don't think I've done a single episode on an athlete from Kentucky yet. So I wanted to talk about a baseball player today. Uh, This is someone you've probably heard of, and you know him probably for his baseball career, but I found his personal life very interesting too. So today I'm going to tell you about the Louisville Slugger, the Gladiator, Pete Browning. I'd like to mention here at the top of the episode that I found a great article that was so helpful in my research. It was written by Philip Von Boris for the Society for American Baseball Research, and I'll link to it in the show notes if you're interested. I also wanted to mention that while I myself am not well-versed in Louisville baseball history, I do come from a pretty serious baseball family on my dad's side. Uh, My grandfather, Richard Bartholomew, played semi-pro, and he was owned by either the Orioles or the White Sox at some point, Uh, but he he had a bad injury, and his career was over really before it even started. But he was definitely in that Louisville baseball circle. He knew a bunch of the Louisville Colonels. Uh, A lot of them stayed at my grandmother's boarding house, and so he introduced my dad, who was just a young boy at the time to some of the Louisville Colonels and other big names in baseball. People like Pee Wee Reese, Al Spangler, Warren Spahn, uh, and Ed Charles. My dad was also a great ball player. Uh, He played in Dayton and then he transferred to Bloomington South High School and he played there and he had an IU baseball scholarship, um, but same thing happened to my dad. He had a really bad elbow injury, ended his baseball career before it even got started. Um, He did get a degree from the IU Kelly School of Business, so all was not lost, but um, he didn't get to play baseball. Big bummer. Um, But back to our story today. Um, Pete Browning, his real name was Lewis Rogers Browning. I don't think Pete was anywhere in his real name. It was just a nickname. He was born on June 17th, 1861, so shortly after the beginning of the Civil War twyla's growling at runners um so yeah pete was born in 1861 right after the beginning of the civil war his family lived in louisville at 13th and jefferson and his parents were samuel browning and mary jane shepherd browning samuel was a successful grocer he owned a grocery store that was just a few blocks from their house um, and they had eight children pete was the youngest so he had three older brothers, um, Charles, Henry, and Samuel Jr. And he had four sisters, Blanche, Fanny, Florence, and Ida Mae. Such cute old-timey names. So when Pete was 13, his father died from injuries sustained during a tornado in 1874. This is interesting. I don't know if maybe he was out of town when this tornado struck somewhere because uh, I can't find information about a tornado in Louisville in 1874. I know the big ones were like 1890 and 1974. So if, if you guys can find something about an 1874 tornado in Louisville, let me know. Um, but regardless, his father died when P was 13. So luckily i guess uh he was the youngest so i'm guessing some of his older siblings were old enough to work and help his mom provide for their huge family um mary jane his mom lived to be 84 years old and pete lived with her the whole time (laughs) um which is kind of interesting and we'll get back to that later but let's talk about pete's baseball start Um, In his teens, he started playing for a local semi-pro team, the Louisville Eclipse. So if you're not familiar with Louisville baseball history, we had the Louisville Colonels, which became a major league baseball team. But before that, they existed as the Louisville Eclipse, which was a semi-pro team. So Pete was playing for the Eclipse, and on July 28, 1877, he pitched a 4 to nothing win over the National League at the time, which was the Louisville Grays, which you may have never even heard of. So this can get a little convoluted if you're not a baseball historian, which I am not, like I said. But if you're from Louisville, which I am and I know a lot of you are, it's good to know this stuff. So the Louisville Grays were a charter member of the National League of Baseball. They just didn't last long. And that's why a lot of people haven't even heard of them. They only existed for two seasons because they were involved in a gambling scandal. Okay, so in 1877, they were in first place in their league. And then suddenly they lost seven games and tied one. And the Sun of the owner of the team, worked for the Courier Journal, and he put out an article about how suspicious this sudden change in the team's skill was, like all of a sudden they were just doing terribly when they were obviously a very talented group of guys. Basically, the Grays were committing a suspicious number of errors, so the league president decided to investigate And he asked Western Union to turn over all telegrams sent and received during that 77 season, anything related to this team. And the telegrams revealed very clearly that players on the Louisville Grays team were throwing games for money. Specifically, the pitcher Jim Devlin, the left fielder George Hall, and utility player Al Nichols. So these players were banned for life, and the team essentially went out of business. Um, So yeah, I'd never heard about this, and I wonder if it's not told more often simply because it's such a shady story. I mean, it just makes us look bad. It's not the prettiest part of Louisville history. But but yeah, that was the Louisville Grays, two seasons, ended in scandal— But at the same time, you had the early days of the Louisville Eclipse, which turned into the Colonels, which did become a major league team that also played in the American Association. So to round out this confusing piece of history here, the American Association folded in 1891. And so the Colonels moved back to the National League, which they continued to play in as a major league team until 1899. (laughs) I hope you're still with me. So in 1900, 14 Colonels players went to play for the Pittsburgh Pirates. And that was the end of the Louisville Colonels as a major league team. So not to be confused with the Louisville Colonels minor league baseball, which during the 20th century, this would be the guys my grandpa was friends with over the years um, the minor league colonels were affiliated with the Pirates, Red Sox, Senators, Orioles, uh, the Braves. And so after the major league team had become defunct, the name was resurrected as a minor league team. That makes sense. So back to Pete Browning. Uh, he pitched that 4 to nothing game against the short-lived but big-time Louisville Grays, um, he struck out those guys that got banned, George Hall, Jim Devlin, um, and as the eclipse turned into the Colonels, Browning really became their star. He led the league in batting and slugging with a 378 and 510 pr- respectively. His batting average was 36 percentage points better than the guy in second place, which was Cincinnati's hit carpenter. His batting average across the 13 seasons that he spent in major leagues from 1882 to 1894 was 341, which puts him tied for eighth place on the all-time list. He also had one 400 season, which from my understanding is pretty outstanding. So uh, very talented, obviously. Um, And in 1884, he got his first custom-made bat from a company called Hillerick and Bradsby, which was a local company that produced a baseball bat they called the Louisville Slugger. I'll read you a quote here. Legend has it that Bud, who played baseball himself, slipped away from work one afternoon in 1884 to watch Louisville's major league team, the Louisville Eclipse. The team's star, Pete Louisville Slugger Browning, mired in a hitting slump, broke his bat. Bud invited Browning to his father's shop to handcraft a new bat to his specifications. Browning accepted the offer and got three hits to break out of his slump with the new bat the first day he used it. Browning told his teammates, which began a surge of professional ballplayers to the Hillary woodworking shop. So the Louisville Slugger baseball bat was essentially named after him uh, because you see him referred to as the Louisville Slugger as his nickname in the papers years before um, the company trademarked their bat. So, uh, yeah, he was like the unofficial spokesperson, basically. Now, twice in the 1880s, Pete Browning hit for the cycle. And when I first read that, I was like, is that a typo? No, it's not. Hitting for the cycle is a term for when a batter hits a single, double, triple, and a home run all in one game. Apparently, apparently it's extremely rare. Um, According to the internet, it's only happened 339 times in Major League Baseball history. So, he did that twice. Um, I've given you kind of the highlights of his career, some of them anyway. Um, But his personal life is a lot more tragic and a lot of the sadness in his life stems from mastoiditis. I think I'm saying that right. I forgot to look it up. Mastoiditis. Um, it's an ear infection, and it reaches, like, behind the ear into the skull. And it's um, it gives you severe inflammation, and it's very painful. And he struggled with this since he was a little kid. He had his first surgery um, in the mid-1880s when it had gotten pretty unbearable for him and of course any kind of surgery in the 1880s not great Um, but especially when you're talking about anything involving the head uh, I don't love it so yeah he he had surgery for it starting in the 1880s he would go on to have several surgeries throughout his life to try to alleviate that inflammation They were never super successful, and it was something he dealt with until he died. So, I talked about how great he was at some parts of the game, specifically hitting. He was often considered one of the worst fielders in Major League history. Um, Although some more recent analyses have said that's not totally true, um, I don't know how you would retroactively determine that, but just based off like his stats and some of the newspaper reports, I think he was pretty average. I think that just compared to his batting performance, everything else kind of paled in comparison. Uh, also, some people will say that he was actually a superb fielder when he wasn't suffering from his ear problems or when he wasn't drunk. So, Pete Browning had a severe drinking problem, and the public sort of caught on that he had a drinking problem when it became obvious during a game in August of 1882. So, I went and found an article about this game, and I'll read you part of it. And this was when they were still the Eclipse, not the colonels yet. So, this is early in Browning's career. Quote, There were 1,100 people present, and up to the eighth inning, they enjoyed the sport immensely. At that point, the visitors took the lead from the homeboys, and of course, that was not so satisfactory to the admirers. The Eclipse were hardly outplayed in the game, but their errors were very costly. To Browning can very easily be traced the loss of the game. Browning had uh, three errors that game. He was clumsy in the outfield, and I think it was pretty obvious to onlookers that he was not sober. If it wasn't obvious, it was made obvious by the Courier-Journal the next day when they printed this. Quote, Browning made his appearance on the ball field most palpably under the influence of liquor, and yet the management team permitted him to enter the game there is not another player in the nine who under the same conditions would be allowed to come on the field mr pank the president occupied a seat on the players bench but as far as is known said nothing about browning's condition and that player showed no regard for his presence the same article also says quote Browning, since the opening of the season, has become too big for this city and has been a very unharmonious element in the club. This is definitely a pattern throughout his career and his life. Uh, the papers are just brutal towards him. They are very judgmental. They are very... They, I mean, they analyze every little thing he does, which, you know, same thing today as a celebrity that y- you kind of have to prepare for that. It's just... um It's mean. Like sometimes they're just downright mean. Um, Anyway, this is the kind of thing that gets glossed over in, you know, a historical marker or some little bio written on a website. This is a real person. And that's what I love about doing this podcast is that I end up finding out that every person has baggage. The story is always more complicated than it seems on the surface. This guy had demons. And again, a lot of it was the inner ear issue. I mean, ear issues will drive people insane. There's no doubt about it. Uh, But yeah, bottom line, this was the beginning of his career, that the paper is writing about him being drunk on the field and blowing the the game. But his talent also couldn't be ignored. And even though there were calls for him to be fired, it just wasn't going to happen. Um, the fact that he was a Louisville native and, and doing this well for this Louisville team, it, you just couldn't, you couldn't create a better figure. Um, so they put up with a lot of, um, um, acting up for lack of a better term. So, um, I'll kind of round out the rest of his career for you all. Um, obviously he was a star for the colonels, even with the drunken mishaps through the 1880s Um, things were going south for the team though and in 1899 they finished last in the league Uh, they they did terribly they won 27 games they lost 111 they also went on strike that year which really wasn't a thing yet it definitely wasn't a thing in baseball it was kind of the first time players refused to play And it was over a, quote, series of heavy fines assessed by team owner Mordecai Davidson. Um, I would imagine their relationship with Davidson was on the rocks anyway. Uh, He had been their owner and manager on and off for several years. And every time he was their manager, they would play at their worst. So there was something negative going on there anyway. Uh, But for those eight seasons that Browning played as a colonel, he finished with a... 345 career batting average which was the best by any with more than one season in the league Uh, it was the best second was tip o'neill with a 343 so close so after that relationship was severed he had moved on to something called the players league which is described as a quote short-lived but star-studded professional american baseball league of the 19th century So what happened was there was a pay dispute. Um, It wasn't just the Colonels. A lot of teams were saying, you guys aren't paying us nearly enough. This was going on in the National League and the American Association. So briefly, this third option was formed, the Players League. And at first, all these really good players flocked to it. So uh, Pete Browning went to play for the Cleveland Infants which only existed for that one season that he played for them. That was in 1890. But during that one season, Browning was their star hitter, and he averaged a 3.73, leading not just their team, but the entire Players League, which, like I said, was full of good players. But as quickly as it came into existence, the Players League fizzled out, And Browning went back to playing for various teams in the National League.
1: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Most of you listening right now are probably multitasking. Yep, while you're listening to me talk, you're probably also driving, cleaning, exercising, or maybe even grocery shopping. But if you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else you can be doing right now. Getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. It's easy, and you could save money by doing it right from your phone. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner, and more.
0: Browning played for the Pittsburgh Pirates in 1891, the Reds in 1892, and then he went back to the Colonels after they joined the National League in a merger in 1893. Played for them for one or two seasons more. Then, briefly, he went to the St. Louis Browns, the Brooklyn Bridegrooms, hilarious name, and that was about it. His last professional season, I believe was in 1896, Uh, He was with the Columbus Buckeyes in the Western League. So that's really a summation of his career. But I do want to go back to his personal life. So mastoiditis, as I mentioned, can be a really severe affliction. It can cause deafness, vertigo, facial palsy, and brain damage. Browning did not hear well. From a young age, he had lost most of his hearing. And he would also have these frequent bouts of crippling head pain, And these symptoms were so severe that he had to drop out of school at a really young age. And so some people didn't realize this, but he was illiterate and he had started drinking very young to cope with all this. Plus the loss of his dad when he was 13 from injuries from a tornado. I mean, that's just, it's a tough start. So uh, the drinking was a lifelong problem, as I said, and the public knew it they learned about it very early on so he was always in the public eye Um, he would get suspended for months at a time for drunkenness this came later in his life um, like in 1899 towards the end of his career uh, he was suspended for two months Uh, and a quote he apparently said quite often was i can't hit the ball until i hit the bottle so just to kind of drive home how bad this was. Um, I'll read you an article. This is straight from the Courier Journal, Friday, June 2nd, 1888. So this is earlier in his career. Um, but it says Pete Browning's Fall. Pete Browning is a blue ribbon man no more. He fell from grace in Kansas City last Monday, and since then has been apparently endeavoring to make up for the time he lost while wearing the Murphy badge. He got roaring drunk Monday, but was put to bed before he had a chance to show what a large-sized ass he is when under the influence of liquor. But on Tuesday, his sense of humor developed with each drink he took, and it was but a short time until he had purchased fishing tackle and begun fishing in the gutter in front of the hotel. It had rained heavily, and the gutter was full of water, and he couldn't resist the temptation to show how much he loved it except as a beverage. He made so much fuss about the hotel that he was put out of it and came near landing in jail. He refused to go with the club to Cincinnati Tuesday night and was left in Kansas City, where he probably is yet. He is expected to become sober and penitent and ask permission to rejoin the club. That is his usual way. So... The way the paper wrote that like that's his usual way gives you a pretty good understanding of what an ongoing issue this was. He was referred to in another article as Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, because he was one person sober and then just a nightmare of a person when drunk. He would get fined pretty often and have to show up to court and face uh, drunk and disorderly charges. There were periods of time when he would try to stay sober It just never lasted very long. Uh, But during those times, one of his hobbies was to go ice skating. Apparently, he was a very good ice skater. So on his downtime, when he wasn't drunk or playing baseball, he would skate. That would keep him out of trouble, at least temporarily. He was also said to be very eccentric by those who knew him. For one thing, Pete Browning liked to talk to his baseball bats. He spoke to them, and he gave them all biblical names. He was a very religious man, and he thought that each bat could only contain a certain number of hits. So he would keep track, and then he would frequently retire a bat after it would get so many hits, which I don't know that this part is that weird. I think a lot of athletes have rituals like that, um, but he did keep every bat he ever used he kept all his bats he took them all home he had a warehouse basically at his home uh, the house that he shared with Mary Jane his mom he never let anyone touch the bats that he was actively using because only he could touch them while they were magic Uh, by the way the bats he used were 37 inches and 48 ounces in weight which from my understanding is like unusually large Um, He was six foot. So, I mean, he was a pretty big guy for the 1880s. But yeah, he used a big bat. He also made a habit of staring directly at the sun. He thought that staring at the sun would strengthen his eyes. He also washed his eyes with buttermilk. So he would have it delivered every morning and he would basically wash his face and wash his eyes with buttermilk. When on trains, he would cleanse his eyes by hanging his head out the window like a dog. He would also compute his batting averages all the time, and he would write them down on the cuffs of his sleeves. And then when arriving at train depots, he would get up and announce to everybody that he was the champion batter of the American Association. So aside from just being eccentric, he also may not have been the most humble of athletes, um he also refused to slide. He basically acted like sliding was beneath him. Um he would never slide to a plate, which a lot of times like cost him games. Um but that that was something that he remained adamant about. He also remained a bachelor all his life. He never got married, although he did like prostitutes, as was noted in the local papers. One article early on 1887 said, quote, ever since the Louisville club has attained second place in the championship race, Browning has been spreeing frequently, keeping irregular hours and indulging in bad company. After he retired from baseball, he became a cigar salesman for a while. He owned a bar at 13th and Market, which didn't do very well, didn't last very long. And he wasn't doing him well himself. Uh, he, his health was declining. And in 1905, he was committed to Lakeland Asylum, which I do have an episode on. If you'd like to scroll back to September of 2021, you can find that. Um, but yeah, he didn't age well. He was declared insane, and he was committed to Lakeland. The really sad thing about this, it feels like I've talked about this like big, long life that this guy had. He was 44 years old in 1905 when he was committed, and he died that same year on September 10th. The cause of death was officially listed as asthenia, which was like an old-timey way of saying his body was weakened to the point of death, but the truth was he was really sick. He had cancer. He had cirrhosis. He had alcohol-related brain damage. There was also some mention of paresis, which is the third and final stage of syphilis. So several different things probably contributed. Um, But yeah, he died at 44 years old. He's buried in beautiful Cave Hill Cemetery with other Louisville sporting legends that I hope to talk about in the future. So that's the story of Pete Browning, a Louisville baseball legend. If you're not following me already on social media, please do so because I'm going to post pictures of this guy and he is quite quite a looker, if I do say so myself. He's very tall. He's got this great old-timey mustache that's just, it's so good. With the baseball uniform, it just works. Um, I will post additional resources on my website, kyhistoryhaunts.com but you can follow me on Instagram at KY history haunts and find me on Facebook. Just search Kentucky history and haunts. There's also a Facebook group that is growing and I'm excited about that. It's called Kentucky history and haunts and more (laughs) kind of a long name, but, um, lots of new followers in there. I'm really excited about it. And I think that's really all I've got. I'm just so happy that it's sunny out and I hope you all are staying healthy and happy Thank you for listening and until next time.